My name is David Wilson. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 94.12. So blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from the days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness and and all the upright in heart will follow it. The word of the Lord. And my name is Haley Wilson. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote you in my earlier letter that you shouldn't make yourselves at home among the sexually promiscuous. I didn't mean that you should have nothing at all to do with outsiders of that sort, or with crooks, whether blue or white collar, or with spiritual phonies for that matter. You'd have to leave the world entirely to do that. But I'm saying that you shouldn't act as if everything is just fine when a friend who claims to be a Christian is promiscuous or crooked, is flip with God or rude to friends gets drunk or becomes greedy or predatory. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. I'm not responsible for what the outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? God decides on the outsiders, but we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line, and if necessary, clean house. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Julie. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile and tax collector. I assure you that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, I assure you that if two, or you, two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, then my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We begin with scripture readings each week before the sermon as a way of letting us kind of soak and listen to the word of God being read aloud. And we do it from up there on the stage as a way of saying that when we come to God's word, we don't stand over it, hoping to get something out of it, but we stand under it, letting it change us and speak to us. And it's an important posture because so often we speak of the Bible as something that we want to get something out of. And the tricky thing about that is it means that Some passages we do get something out of, and other passages that we find tricky or problematic, we skip. Now, the advantage of doing a series throughout a book on the Bible, as we are right now in 1 Corinthians, is you can't really skip. And believe me, I did not want to speak about excommunication on Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) Unless, of course, someone showed up in a Seahawks jersey, then maybe. Put that man out of here. No, just kidding. Just kidding. That's good. Good for you. You're a brave, brave soul. It's going to be a disappointing day for you. Okay, anyway. When we began the series on 1 Corinthians, we said one of the questions that this book wrestles with is what does it mean to live as a Christian in the midst of a secular world or an immoral world? And for many of us, if not all of us here as Americans or in America, this is a, this is a new question 
Because America is blessed to have its heritage so full of, of men and women who were influenced by their Christian faith. And so there's so many things that are deeply embedded in our country and in our culture and in our history that at least, at the very least, draw from these streams. But we're living in a kind of a different day today, aren't we? And we're more and more becoming more and more aware that wait a minute, this society, this world, this culture is pluralistic and there's people of many beliefs and many persuasions and what do we do as Christians in the midst of it? One of the reasons we're doing this series is to say to you, political liberties, religious liberties aside, just as far as the church is concerned, this ought not to worry us because Christians have been here before. Christians have had to be on the margins before. In fact, if you follow it all through Africa and the Middle East and other parts of, of Asia, there are Christians who are dying for their faith. And so the experience of Christians historically, maybe even globally, is that of being on the margins. The question for us is not just how do we live on the margins or how do we live in a, in a culture that's moving the opposite way that we are, but really what does it mean to be the people of God amidst a world that almost doesn't care, that's irreligious, that is uh, immoral, that embraces a whole different way of living. And that's what this series has, has really has been about. I want to warn you that over the next few weeks as we get into chapter 6 and chapter 7, the astute reader will recognize things are about to get PG-13 here. And that's okay. That's what we, we, better that we talk about it in church than somewhere else. But I, it's a, consider that a heads up. We do have children's ministry all the way up to fifth grade. Just a fair warning. But one of the things, one of the tendencies we have fallen into when it comes to the question of how to live in the world, we have said, okay, you know what? Maybe what we need to do is we need to judge the world. We need to tell the world how bad it is. We need to go ahead and say how awful it is. And so when an event happens, whether it's uh, you know, the VH1 Awards or the MTV Awards or the Grammys or whatever it is, we have Christians that feel the, the need to tell the world how world-ish it is. And we think this is what it means to be a Christian in our world is to judge and name the sin of the world. Now, for others of you, you say, you know, I'm so tired of that. I've been around that. I've grown up around that. I've experienced that. It's just, it's, it's, it's not fun. I think what we need to do is we just need to be loving. And what we say, though, about love is oftentimes complicated because when we talk about love, we say, okay, so loving means that all of a sudden we say, well, I don't, I don't really know if that's an issue and, and, and who am I to say and, and, and maybe that's okay. And so under this word love, we've sort of said, ah, <laughs> and it's kind of this uncertain thing. And we find ourselves maybe schizophrenic a little bit. Sometimes we say, I just want to be loving and I, I have no opinion about that. And then other times we say, yes, I do. And that person's going straight to hell. We don't know which place to land. One of the words that has shown up a lot in conversations about how the church should be towards the world is this word hospitality. And maybe some of you have seen this, but the idea is, look, Jesus welcomed sinners, and so the church ought to be a place of hospitality. It needs to be a place where everybody is made to feel welcome. And you know, I have to say, that is a remarkable improvement from the stance of hostility that we used to have. That hospitality is a much better posture. But here's the thing, you guys. Hospitality is a beginning point, not an end point. 
It's an entrance into the family. It's not how you continue to live. In other words, hospitality says you are welcome into this family, but eventually community standards begin to take over and you begin to say, okay, if you're going to live in this family, this is how we live. And this is a little bit like saying to someone, you're welcome into my home. You can be a house guest. You can, be, you can come over for dinner. I'm not going to ask you to do the dishes. But if you end up staying for two weeks, three weeks, a month, I'm going to say, you know, um, we don't really mix darks and lights in the laundry. And it'd be better if you just didn't leave your dishes piled up in your bathroom sink. Because now it's not just hospitality. Hospitality was me welcoming you in. But now there's some measure of saying, okay, now that you're in the community, this is how you live. And this is, I think, exactly what is going on in this text for Paul. Is he's saying to this young Corinthian church, he's saying, it's wonderful to welcome in the outsider. But I've got to tell you, entrance into this community means a different way of living. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1 is where we'll start. Before, as you're doing that, just kind of a reminder each week of what Corinth is, what Corinth was. Corinth was this thriving Greek Greek city a few hundred years before Christ, and then it was conquered and overrun, and there was this this conqueror named Mummius who leveled the city, and it lay in ruins for a hundred years, from about 146 B.C. to 46 B.C., until the Romans, Caesar, Julius Caesar says, you know, let's reestablish this. Let's make it a Roman city. And it becomes this capital of this Roman province of Achaia, which is, you know, sort of on this peninsula. And it becomes this prime location. And there's retired military from Caesar's army that begin to settle there. There's new uh, entrepreneurs that begin to take advantage of the, the location among trade routes that bring business back to that city. Eventually on that isthmus, there's games that happen every two years called the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games. So it becomes by Paul's day, the city that is thriving with culture and sport and wealth but also a people consumed with status and success and sexuality. There's two temples that dominated the skyline. Aphrodite's temple up on this hill called the Acrocorinth. Everybody would see it every day. And Aphrodite's temple was a living reminder to everyone that part of how you worship is sex. Only it was twisted. And then you had Apollo's temple, which extolled masculinity with a warped sense of it, a way of saying this is what it means to be strong and powerful. It means to exploit. It means to take advantage of. And this is the backdrop that this letter stands against. 1 Corinthians 5, as we work through this chapter this morning, we're going to ask ourselves three questions about judging, and the first is this, whom do we judge? Whom do we judge? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, everyone has heard that there is a sexual immorality among you. This is a type of immorality that isn't even heard of among the Gentiles. A man is having sex with his father's wife. And Paul is clear here. The first thing we're going to say about this is that this is an ongoing, the way the verbs are in in the Greek are an ongoing, and so the implication with ongoing is unrepentant. Ongoing, unrepentant, well-known sin. So when we're saying, well, well, well whom do we judge? Well, what, what is it? 
First, we're going to say, well, it's the kind of sin that is ongoing, that is unrepentant, and that is well known. But skip down with me to verse 9. We heard it in our New Testament reading. And Paul says, I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people in the outside world by any means, or the greedy or the swindlers or the people who worship false gods. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world entirely. And so he's saying, listen, guys, when I talk about cutting off fellowship, I'm not talking about not working with non-Christians. I'm not talking about only going to Christian coffee shops. I'm not talking about only having testaments in your mouth after... Or greedy or swindler, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls themselves brother or sister who is sexually immoral, greedy, someone who worships false gods, an abusive person, a drunk or a swindler. Don't even eat with anyone like this. What do I care about judging outsiders, Paul says? Isn't it it your job to judge insiders? God will judge outsiders. Expel the evil one from among you. This passage is tough on so many levels because, again, there's been this movement in in some circles of the Christian um, world that says, I don't like insider-outsider language. Jesus broke down the wall. There are no more insiders and outsiders. There's no us versus them. You know what? In a very real way, that's true in the sense that we all depend on God's grace. But there is a clear line between those who are part of the community of faith and those that are not. And I think that's uncomfortable for us because we want to say there's no insider and outsider. And yet here is Paul using this language. And because we stand under the text, not over it, we say, well, I, 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 there must be something about this that I must take seriously. That saying yes to Jesus is like entrance into a family. And once we are in the family, there's a new way to live. So Paul makes it clear, though, when we're saying, well, whom do we judge? It's not the world. It's not the people who don't accept Christ. It's the ones who claim Christ as Lord. And the ones who go ahead and say, well, I, you know, it doesn't matter. I want to say a couple things about this, okay, because... There are, there's a chance that many of you are going to hear this text in different ways. Some of you are going to hear it and say, I knew it. Well, we are going to, there are some people we are just not going to hang around anymore. And you've just been waiting for permission. <laughs> and then others of you are going to hear this and say, uh, I don't know, and, and what does this mean? So let me, let me give a few, offer a few qualifiers. Paul is not talking about the seeker. On any given Sunday, there's a chance that there are people, there are some of you that are here today because you're just... You're interested, you're curious, you're intrigued. What is this Jesus thing? Is there a kind of Christianity that's different from maybe the Christianity I thought I knew? Paul isn't talking about the person who's coming and saying, uh, I'm not ready to say yes to Jesus, but I'm here. He's talking about the person who has said, I'm in, I'm baptized. Jesus is the Lord of my life. I am a brother or a sister in Christ. Paul's talking about the person who is all in or claims to be all in. Does that make sense? There's a tremendous amount of patience and mercy and grace for the person who says, I, I don't know about any of this. I, I'm coming because my friend invited me, but I just, I, I don't know. I thought this was a pregame pep rally. That's why I came. You know? <laughs> Paul's not talking about that. 
Secondly, I don't think he's talking about struggling against a sin. He's he's not talking about the person who's struggling against a sin, but rather the person who has surrendered to a sin. There's a difference. I'm telling you that we have all learned a lot about the psychology of addiction, the psychology of compulsive actions and sin. And I've had so many conversations with people who say, "I, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I keep going there and I keep doing this and I know it's, it's sin and I know it's immoral but I, and that person is struggling against it. That's not the person to cut out of fellowship. Can I say that? I've heard heartbreaking stories of a person struggling against an addiction and his loving Christian community saying, you're no longer my friend, I won't eat with you anymore. That's misreading this, I think. This is talking about a person who's not struggling against a sin, but a person who has surrendered to it. A person who says, what? There's nothing wrong with this. In fact, you'll see Paul later goes on and says, you're, actually, you're not just okay with it. You're proud that you're okay with it. This is not the idea. The idea is not a person who's, who's humble, who's repentant, who's brokenhearted, who's saying, I don't know how to change. Listen, if the church is not for people struggling against sin, then who is it for? Do you know what I'm saying? This is for, for all of us who are in recovery. This is for all of us who are learning to say, I am powerless. This is, church is for all of us who are broken and saying, I, I don't know how to live differently than I am, but I can't stay the way I am. Church is for those. But what Paul is talking about is the person who says, yeah, I love Jesus. And no, that, that's not really sin. I am fine with it. In fact, I love it. I flaunt it. I'm okay with it. I celebrate it. Bam. Nothing's going to stop me. And it's so ironic that as Christians, we often invert this order. Instead of being merciful to the quote-unquote outsiders and being tough on true insiders, we are merciful to insiders and tough on outsiders. We would be okay with Christians living in habitual, persistent, blatant, unrepentant sin. We're okay with the person who, out of, who married his mistress and thought there was nothing wrong with it. We're okay with that, but we get all in a tizzy when Miley Cyrus is twerking. It's kind of backwards. It's Paul saying, What? It's not your job. You don't judge them. That's not your concern. Your concern is the brother and the sister who's with you. Are you going to help them take their baptism seriously? Are you going to help them take that seriously? All right, whom do we judge? Great. How? How do we judge? Verse 2. Paul says, and you're proud of yourselves instead of being so upset that the one who did this thing is expelled from your community. Though I'm absent physically, I'm present in the spirit, and I've already judged the man. (gasps) In this age of biblical illiteracy, the only words of Jesus we seem to know are the ones where he said, judge not. And we've forgotten that Jesus says, look, if you're following me, there are some things that other people are, are supposed to say, no, we can't do that. No, we don't live that way. No, we don't. By the way, I think there's a parallel track to this in the, 
literature out there on parenting, some of the literature out there in parenting, or school, or as teachers. Some of you teachers, you know, you've been frustrated by the approach that says, you know, let the student decide what he or she should learn. You don't need to tell them. If they don't want to learn that, they don't need to learn that. Who says math matters? Or in parenting, character, schmarrector, just kind of let the child know they're loved and affirmed and just however they're going, let them go. That there's no idea of nurture, there's no concept of virtue. Mind you, this is not just a lost, quote-unquote, Christian idea. This is a lost classical idea. That classically there's this concept of virtue that we're supposed to aim ourselves toward and then move toward. But of course, Paul says, you, you seem so proud that, that you're not doing anything. And he says, I've already judged the man who did this as if I were present. And when you meet together in the name of our Lord Jesus, I'll be present in the spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. The first thing we'd have to say when we're saying, how do we judge? The first thing we'd have to say is with grief and sadness. That if you find in your heart the trace of glee, you're probably not the person to deal with this. If you find in your heart that a trace of gloating and glee, you're probably not the person to have this conversation with them. But if you are like a mother heartbroken over a child, then you maybe are the person to talk to them. If you can grieve like Paul grieves over this, then do it. Secondly, I want to say, <laughs> some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, deal with this when you're all together? Like, you know, Dave was joking about confessing his sins in the announcement, but is that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to come together and be like, I did this. And I, no, 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 no. I think the trajectory, the, 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 the axiom goes like this. You deal with a public sin publicly, and you deal with a private sin privately. And Paul's saying this community of about 100 believers or so in a city of 250,000, everybody knows what this guy is doing, and lots of people are patting him on the back for it. And saying, good job. Oh, man, that's, all, that's so cool. Wow. You're a stud. <laughs> and Paul's saying, you guys, this has to be addressed publicly. Talk about this the next time you're all together. And the gospel reading, I think, addressed that. Why do we judge? This is the question that I think is of greatest importance for us. Chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, your bragging isn't good. Don't you know that the tiny grain of yeast makes a whole batch of dough rise? Clean out the old yeast so you can be a new batch of dough, given that you're supposed to be unleavened bread. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, so let's celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of honesty and truth, not with old yeast, with the yeast of evil and wickedness. What? Passover, yeast, dough, leaven, leaven, what? What is this? Paul, of course, is drawing on a well-known Jewish feast, maybe the central Jewish feast, Passover. And Passover was celebrated with, with unleavened bread because on the, on the first Passover, they were supposed to eat the meal in a hurry, with coats and boots on, if you will. And so they, didn't have, they couldn't wait for the bread to rise, and so they, they, they made it without any leaven, as if to say, we have to hurry and get out of here. And so every time before the feast of Passover would begin, they would sweep the house of any leaven, of any yeast, and they would say, get every trace of it out of the house so that we can enter into this feast. 
And then Paul says, but let's not forget, Christ is our Passover lamb. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment, why Paul keeps pointing us back to Jesus. Because he's saying that, listen, this isn't a kind of ritual purity as a way of you cleaning yourself up. No, but what he's saying is, why do we judge? First of all, to preserve the community. First of all, to preserve the community. In other words, what God is doing here is special, and it's sacred, and we're not going to let a toxic thing destroy it. Now, there is a parallel to this, I think, in the world of medicine, and it might be painful for some of you if you've known people with cancer, but you know cancer is the kind of thing that you want every trace gone out of you. And I've talked with people who are going through this who say, Doc, whatever it takes, you get every last bit out. And the truth is, when you have a surgeon or an oncologist or someone dealing with cancer, you don't want them, you don't want them to be tolerant. You don't want them to be, well, I guess we could leave a bit there. I mean, sometimes it all depends on what lenses you have on when you look at the issue, isn't it? Because if you thought of sin in the community, persistent, open, unrepentant sin, if you thought of that as, oh, it's fine, it's not a big deal, then the lenses that you look at the issue with are the lenses that say, come on, let's just, it's okay. But if you thought of this as something that will eventually take down the community, then you're going to be more likely to have the surgeon lenses on. And nobody wants a surgeon to to come in and be sweet and be kind. You want them to be ruthless. That's hard to say. Maybe a more, less intense example of it is the dentist. Every time I go to the dentist, I know I'm in for two things. One, a lecture about why I don't floss. (laughs) And two, a very painful scraping. (laughs) But you sort of know, I'm not going in for a spa, I'm going for a cleaning. But if I thought I was going into the spa, I would be very upset with the hygienist. Like, this is the worst spa ever. (laughs) You got the wrong set of lenses on. And I suggest that we've forgotten that there is a lens that we need when it comes to the community of God. There's a lens that we need that is not the spa lens. Church isn't a group of people hanging out on a cruise ship getting foot rubs. Churches are people who are being saved in the midst of the world. Church is a group of people letting the grace of God refine us and perfect us and make us in the world a sign in the world of the redemption that has come. And if that's what church is, then we can't mess, we're not messing around. But it's not just to preserve the community. See, oftentimes, and you know this in the corporate world, oftentimes it's either protect the organization or crucify the indiv- or protect the individual, right? And so a lot of times you'll see big companies, they'll, they'll fire the individual to protect the corporation because we've got to keep the institution going. Or we'll see someone protect the individual and then it co- the cover-up blows up. 
later. And we've read stories like that. Why did, why did the institution protect the individual? And then all of a sudden we realize, oh my gosh. Right? Paul says the church is attempting something unique. It's attempting to preserve the community and save the person. Because listen to what he goes on and says. He says in verse 5, At this time we need to hand this man over to Satan to destroy this human weakness so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. The goal here, why do we judge? Not just to preserve the community, but to save the individual. Now a couple of phrases here, okay? Because some of you are like, hand this person over to Satan? Like, what is this? I thought this was like a happy church. <laughs> we're so happy when we were singing This phrase, and I consulted a number of commentaries in in this, this phrase, hand him over to Satan, most likely refers to this idea of saying, put them in Satan's sphere. So where else the church is God's domain, the church is where the rule of God, the kingdom of God takes expression. The church is where God's rule really comes to bear. The world is where Satan has free reign. And when Paul is saying, put him out, hand him over to Satan, he's not saying, Satan's not like waiting to torment. It's not like that. It's saying, put him outside of the sphere of God's people because he's obviously not embracing God's rule. So let him have the rule he wants. He doesn't want God's rule. Let him have the rule he wants. And then Paul says that his flesh might be destroyed. And some of you are reading this in the ESV or other translations that say flesh. And you're like, oh my gosh, what? What? Are we talking, is this some weird purgatory thing where like the body dies but the spirit floats up and Satan says, I get to barbecue some flesh. You know, like what? It's so bizarre. Like what is he talking about? The Greek word sarks can be translated in a number of ways. It can be understood as physicality, flesh as in physicality. But contextually, the way Paul uses sarks, especially in his letter to Romans and in context of contrasting it to the spirit, Paul's not talking about physicality, he's talking about carnality. And if you say, what's carnality? Like carnivore? Like, no, 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 no. Carnality, there's a very simple way of thinking about it. It's insisting on your own life over and against God. It's self-sufficiency. And Paul's saying, that's what that we, in lots of Paul's letters, when he uses the word the flesh, this is what he means. The flesh is the self-sufficient life. The person who says, I've got all the resources I need for the life that I want. I trust in the flesh. And Paul says, if you hand him over to the ruler that he really wants, his self-sufficiency will be destroyed. In other words, when you let a person have what they say they want, or while they're living like they want, Over time, what you'll find is the self-sufficiency will be destroyed. But Paul says the goal is this. The goal is not to gloat and say, see, I told you that. How'd that work out for you? Don't come crying home. That's not Paul. Paul says, listen, that his self-sufficiency may be destroyed so that this person, his spirit, might be saved on the day of the Lord. See, the result is the destruction of self-sufficiency, but the purpose is the salvation of the person. Let's say it a different way. God's judgment is not merely punitive. It's restorative. God's judgment is not merely punitive. It's restorative. Sometimes I think we have to really reframe the way we hear the word judgment. 
Maybe we can say it in, in simple English. God's judgment is not about paying you back. It's about turning you back. It's not about paying you back. Oh, you did that? Mm-hmm-hmm. Take that. It's not retribution. It's restoration. It's not paying you back. It's turning you back. I think of this really even as a parent because so many times I wonder as parents if we discipline our kids mostly because we're embarrassed in public. And that it's not because we're trying to instruct or correct or turn them back, but because we're embarrassed and we don't want to look like we're not good parents. So we yell and slap and all of this stuff because we think, I've got to... But, But you realize... This isn't a reflection of God the way God's judgment is. Or maybe what's worse is we do that because we think that's what God's judgment is. Maybe we treat our children like this because deep down inside we think that's what God is like. God's an angry, retributive father who just wants to punish my sin. Instead of saying there is judgment, but God's goal in judgment is always to turn you back. Before it's too late. Before he says, please don't push me away. Please don't insist on your own way all the way up until the end. I keep trying to turn you back. I keep trying to turn you back. How is this possible? How is it possible that God's judgment is restorative and not just punitive? It's possible because of Jesus. It's possible because God said... (laughs) I am going to come. I am going to come and suffer the death that is yours if you continued on this way. I love the way a friend described this. And he said, we often think that Adam turns away from God in the garden and God turns away from Adam. Instead, what you really see is Adam turns away from God and God comes looking. And the whole of the Old Testament is God calling. And God said, I'm trying to turn you back. I'm trying to turn you back. And John the Baptist coming and saying, repent, turn back. And Jesus coming and saying, if you won't turn back, I'm going to follow you. And I'm not just going to follow you, but I'm going to show you where the path you're on leads. In fact, I'm going to beat you to it. You're headed to a cliff. I'm not just going to follow you, I'm going to overtake you. I'm going to beat you to the cliff. I'm going to beat you to the destruction that your sin was leading you to. And I'm going to stand on the cross and take it and say, listen, this doesn't have to be your end. I'm not just going to follow you. I'm going to overtake you. God's judgment for our sin fell upon Christ because he loves us. And that's how we can say that there is No need for any of this judgment to be defining. In fact, when we ask ourselves what this means for us, it means in the first place that we can embrace discipline as correction and not as condemnation. Condemnation is a final verdict. And we can say, you know what? not sure about joining a meal group because I don't know if I want people 
speaking into my life, calling me up into who Christ is calling me to be. I don't know if I want that, but, but maybe I could believe that all of this is just correction and not condemnation. Secondly, I think it means that because Jesus took God's judgment of our sin upon himself, no judgment of you now needs to be final. None of this is the last word. There is no need for you to say, well, I I guess this is the last word. I guess this is all I am. I guess this is all I'll ever be. The last word on you is that you are beloved. The last word on you is that Christ died for our sin. The last word on you is that you are blessed. Now we can reject this verdict and say, no, no, no. I've got it on my own. Or worse yet, what? There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Who cares? It's one of the tragedies of our day that everything that we hear says to us, you don't actually need to change. You just need to accept yourself. So I, I, I like listening to interviews of um, athletes, even though they don't say anything new. But once in a while, an athlete will goof up, say something that was clearly out of line. And once in a while, they'll apologize for it. Actually, that's what Richard Sherman did. He said something, and, and a few days later, he said, you know what, it was selfish, I took attention to him. As much as I don't want to like him, he actually retracted And the reason that was so striking is that most people don't retract anymore. Most people say, I don't regret what I said. It's who I am. Just being who I am. And the overriding message of our day is you don't need to change who you are. You just need to accept who you are. Make no apology. Don't back down. Take a stand. Love yourself. Be proud of yourself. And get on with your life. You go, girl. And the gospel is so jarring in the midst of this world. But I'll tell you that what the gospel is also not. The gospel is also not, okay, well, then I I better change myself, and I better get better, and I better fix myself, and I better make myself new, and I better try harder. That's also not the gospel. That's religion. And that's what many people think the church is saying. So their whole lives they grew up in a church that said, you better get better and you better live better and you better be a better dad and a better husband and a better friend. And, you be-. and so they've said, enough with that junk. And they swing to this other side that says, I love myself. Stop trying to shame me. And all, the long, all, all along, right in the middle is Jesus saying, you can't change yourself, but you also don't want to stay the way you are. But all you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Let me exchange my life for yours. The call to repentance 
has become a bad word in churches. You won't believe the emails I've gotten over the years of doing confession in service. Of some people saying, confession? Man, we don't need confession. Jesus already forgives my sins. I just need to say thanks. Can I tell you that we don't do confession because we're trying to convince God to be merciful? No, no. We do confession because we know that God is merciful. We confess our sins each week, not because we're begging and groveling and saying, please, 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 I know this was extra bad, so I need extra. We confess because we're saying, God, I have tried my self-sufficient way and it leads to death. And what I want instead is your life. Confession is saying, I give up. Confession is saying, I can't. Confession is saying, I long to be different, but I can't change myself. Confession is saying, Jesus, come, come.